Last Sunday, we, we looked at Job's depressing lament in chapter 30. Boy, that was a hard text. And uh, he basically described how he had been abused by men, particularly young men from us, how he thought he was being abused by God, and then he gave a kind of overview of, of his overall anguish. And uh, it, was a, it was a tough text. In the next section, he gives his final speech in the book. Are you happy about that, that this is the last time that, that Job is going to cry and whine? Um, this is his last speech in the book. This is his, his last, uh, his final speech, his last defense, so to speak. We're not going to hear from him again until chapter 40, verse 3, where he simply says to God, you're speaking now, I'll shut up. Those are like the next words from him. So we, we don't see him again or, or hear from him for a while. And in this final speech, Job basically searches his own life. He's kind of just looking back through his life, really to prove that he was not guilty of the sins that were being assigned to him by his friends. And what he does is, it's really kind of, it looks complex, but it's really simple. And what he does is, he defends 10 of his own personal traits, characteristics or personal traits. And um, these are really 10 things about him, 10 of his own personal traits that, that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, they were just viciously attacking his character in these traits. And uh, it's, it's a 40 verses for this chapter, chapter 31, so we're not even going to attempt to deal with all of it. We're going to look at the first five traits, which will be basically Job 31, 1 through 23. So when you think about chapter 31, think that Job is defending 10 of his own personal character traits that had, they were being assailed and assaulted by his friends. That's, that's what's going on in this text. And we'll look at 1 through 5. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at 6 through 10. Five traits that he defends. The first one, this is where we pick up from last week, would be Job's purity. Job's purity. We see this in verses 1 through 4. And we'll start at verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Okay, he made a promise with his own eyes, so to speak. Remember, this is poetry. It's very creative. He says, since I've done that, how then could I gaze at a virgin? How could I do that? Obviously, what we're learning right off the bat here is that Job's friends were charging him with gazing at virgins and looking at women that weren't his wife and looking at them lustfully, and that, that's what we're dealing with here. And it's amazing because when you read the rest of the book, there's no real indication there that his friends were charging him with this. Well, now we know that of all the sins they were trying to nail him on, this was one of them. And uh, last week I posed the question as to how old Job was, and Anne had looked it up, I think, at that time, finding out that he was 70 years old at this time. So what his friends are doing is they're charging a 70-year-old man with being a dirty old man. That's what's happening. And uh, that's exactly what's going on here. You're a dirty old man. This is why God's judgment has fallen upon you. That's why you're, you're getting nuked. We know that you gaze at virgins, the virgins of us. And I find that to be an interesting charge. It's like, how, how do you know someone's a virgin or not? Did they wear a hat with a V on it? How, how do you know these things, right? I, I, maybe there was something about their apparel or, you know, if a man went near one of them, the man was whipped out of there. I mean, I just don't, how do you, how do you know these things? But apparently, they know who the virgins are. Well, if Job's friends know who the virgins are, I'd say that there might be a problem with them. Amen? You've looked into this? It sounds like you guys are the ones staring at the virgins and trying to figure out who they are. By the way, ma'am, are you a virgin? It's, it's just a really peculiar, weird situation here, and they're charging him with this. This is, this is why you've lost everything, because you're a lustful, dirty old man. 
And Job says, I, I had made a covenant. He says, I, I have made, but really it's past tense too. He had a covenant with his eyes before he fell into this calamity. He had basically made a promise to his eyes. Look, eyes, you're always going to be seeing things, but when you see an attractive young woman or an attractive woman, you're not to gaze or gawk. If it's a virgin, again, I don't know how they know that, you're, you're not to stare at that person and, and think dirty things. He had made a promise with his eyes, a covenant, he calls it. And really, he's not just covenanting with his eyes, but with his mind, right? Because the eyes see and then the mind entertains. So he's making a promise with his eyes, a promise with his mind, and even a promise with his heart because stuff happens here too. This is the seat of emotions. And of course, when you look upon somebody with lust, you're using your eyes, you're using your mind, you're using your emotions. And he's saying, I covenanted with the totality of who I am not to do this. And Job knew to break his commitment to not being lustful and to gazing at virgins and these sorts of things. He just knew that if he fantasized about other women and all that, he would be in sin. He knew that was a sin. Proverbs 6.25 makes that clear. Of course, he didn't have that text, but he knew. And being that he knew that, that looking at other women lustfully like that was a sin, he had made a covenant and said, I'm not going to do it. I do not want to sin against the Lord. He was determined not to commit that sin. This is what he's saying. And really what we're talking about here is not just purity, but sexual purity, right? Verses 2 to 4, it's like if I, if I had looked at him lustfully, then he's saying this, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not God see my ways and number all my steps? Job is essentially describing the consequences of lustful fantasizing here. What would the portion from God be if he had gazed at virgins and thought of them lustfully? What would his heritage from the Almighty on high be? Um, what, 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 what would happen if he were an unrighteous worker of iniquity? What would his divine punishment be? It would be, as he says, calamity and disaster. So, so in Job's mind, the direct, uh, the direct punishment or judgment from God that would come against lustful thoughts would be calamity and disaster. In verse 4, Job describes what I would call his perplexity, and the whole book is riddled with his confusion. Was Job not experiencing calamity and disaster? He was, wasn't he? So what's going through Job's mind here is that, look, if I were to do what you're saying, calamity and disaster would come upon me. I haven't done it, and yet I'm still dealing with calamity and disaster. This is how he's confused. I shouldn't be paying the price for lustful thoughts because I have not committed lustful thoughts. You know, he, he was not sexually immoral. We, we don't want to get the wrong idea. Job was not a perfect man, but he was not a sexually immoral man. He had a covenant with his eyes. He was careful. He was not doing what his friends suggested, and yet he is dealing with what appears to be the repercussions or judgments that would come against someone who does that. But we know for a fact, Job 1.1, that he wasn't doing this. He was a blameless, righteous man. You can't be a lustful man and a blameless man at the same time. You're one or the other. So he's, he's very confused. He's telling his friends, I haven't done this. And his friends are probably going, but have you looked in the mirror? You almost have no skin left. You have worms all over you. You're gross. You, you have done it. Why don't you just admit it? Because look at your condition. Job is saying, I know my condition is pathetic. I know it's horrible. And, and I'm very confounded. I don't know why. But I have not done what you said. That's what's playing out here. We know that his calamity was not the result of impurity. He committed no impurity. This was a satanic attack. Job 1.12 in chapter 2, verse 7 talks about Satan 
laying siege and attacking him and destroying his flesh and destroying his livelihood. So it was, despite the fact that he's a bloody mess, it was completely appropriate for him to defend his sexual purity because he was sexually pure. And, you know, sometimes friends don't believe you, and that's okay. Maybe they're not all that good of friends. With friends like Job's, who needs enemies? They were wrong. They were wrong. So he comes right out of the gate and defends his sexual purity, his first personal trait. Number two, the second thing he defends is his or Job's integrity. And he has been defending this throughout the book. But we see it specifically here in verses 5 through 8. We'll start at 5 and 6. He says, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Exclamation point. Job's friends were attacking not just his personal integrity, but really they were laying siege and attacking and assaulting his business integrity. They believed that the reason why he was experiencing calamity and lost all his wealth and riches and all his business contacts and everything else, they thought the reason why you've lost all that is because you've been a fishy businessman. You haven't conducted business rightly. You're a swindler. You're a cheater. You use unjust measures and, and illegal weights and, and balances and these sorts of biblical terms that are used to describe a bad businessman. This is what they charged him with. You, 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 you're going through this because obviously you've used dishonest scales, Amos 8.5 and Daniel 5.27. And Job is saying very plainly in defending his integrity, he is saying that his feet had not deviated from the path. They followed the path of just business dealings. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if God, he's saying, if, if God were to, to really test me on this and to weigh me on this, right? He says that if he were to weigh me in a just balance, what would happen? God wouldn't know his integrity. God wouldn't know his business dealings. God wouldn't know that he's, he's lived right and conducted good business. If God would just, would just do that, then I would be cleared of these charges. This is what he's saying. And we know that God clears him of the charges later, which must have come as a massive surprise to these wonderful friends. Verses, and that, by the way, came with a fat rebuke from God to them. Verses 7 and 8, he's continuing to defend his integrity, this trait. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. Really illustrative, beautiful poetry here. He's basically describing the consequences of a lack of integrity in business. If I had done what you said, then this is what would happen. And he's describing what would happen here. If his step had turned aside from the way, that's the way things should be done in business, a way that honors God and blesses others. And if his heart had gone after unscrupulous things, you know, that had caught his eye, like ways to cheat and come out on top, ways to make extra profit or whatever when he shouldn't be doing that. And if he had spot his hands with, with dirty dealings, right, like, like conducting business in a way that tarnished his reputation and kind of stained his flesh in such a sense, then he says, if I had done all of that, as you were saying, then may it be that whatever I so that someone else would reap it. In other words, I could go through all this work and all this travail and, and earn all this stuff, but then if it were true of me, then it would just go to somebody else because that's how God would judge me. I would put in all that time and all that crookedness and I would end up with nothing and somebody else would end up with my stuff. That's what he's saying the judgment would be. Or he's saying it would be absolutely destroyed. He says, whatever I grow or whatever the wicked person, that's me, whatever he grows it will be rooted out. That just means that whatever you, in, in um, agricultural terms, whatever it is that you plant and it grows, somebody comes along and tears it out and throws it away. You lose your crop. He's saying, if I'd done any of those things, the judgment would have been that I would have had it all destroyed and 
Whatever I sow would go to others. In other words, if Job lacked business integrity, whatever he earned would either go to others or be destroyed. That's the way to look at it. Now, ironically, this is precisely what happened to him. (laughs) I think Job is taking a tremendous risk here in defending himself because he's actually identifying things that happened to him. And the friends are probably like, he's just confessing. This is so sweet, right? But he's not confessing. How had this happened to him? Well, did not his possessions go to others? Yes, the Sabians stole his oxen and donkeys, Job 1, 14 to 15. Lightning and fire consumed his sheep, Job 1, 16. And the Chaldeans had stolen his camels, and he had a whole bunch of them. All stolen, Job 1, 17. Job's animals and possessions and the things that he had worked so hard to build up did go to others. Through theft, by the way. Now, did these losses confirm the presence of low integrity in Job or in his business dealings? Absolutely not. We've already established that he had integrity. We have already established that he was an honest man. The losses were caused by Satan. Satan stirred up the Sabians and the Chaldeans against Job's oxen, donkeys, camels, and not to mention all his farm workers because they got killed too. Satan also somehow orchestrated the lightning bolt that destroyed Job's sheep. It says the fire of God came down, but that should be, I mean, the way that we would understand that is a lightning bolt. That's the fire of God. And somehow Satan has enough power and enough ability to manipulate nature at times. He doesn't say, okay, now God, it's the time for you to send the lightning bolt on his sheep. I don't think that's the way that it worked out. Somehow Satan was able to conjure this. And if the... uh, Magicians of Egypt can conjure every, almost every miracle that Moses did, and they're demonic, then certainly Satan can replicate things that God alone does. And and he's the one that destroyed. He's the one that sent these raiders in to take all his possessions. He's the one that sent the bolt that caused the fire that nuked his sheep. Job could defend his integrity in business because he hadn't done anything to damage it. His integrity was intact. The whole time. His friends, however, did not believe him. They attributed his devastating losses to a lack of business integrity because their worldview, in their worldview, you know, good people always get good things and bad people always get bad things. And since Job was getting bad things, obviously he's a bad person. Very simplistic kind of view. No room for righteous suffering in their view. We've established that many, many times. So he defends his business integrity. Third personal trait, number three, Job's fidelity. Verses 9 to 12, Job's friends attacked his marriage commitment and fidelity to his wife. They kind of already did that with the charge of, you know, against his sexual purity in the very first verses, but this is a little different here. They were suggesting that he was not only a dirty old man who liked to eyeball virgins, but that he... Probably it's pretty obvious that he went ahead and cheated on his wife. Why else would all this stuff happen to somebody? He had to go the distance to have this caused. And what he does is he exposes their salaciousness in verse 9. He says, If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, stop there. If Job's heart had been enticed toward a woman who was not his wife, causing him to be drawn to his neighbor's door to lie in wait for that neighbor's wife, then what he's saying is, I should suffer the due consequence for that. But Job had not been seduced by his neighbor's wife or any other woman. Proverbs 5.8 speaks to that a bit, not about Job, but in general. The penalty for such an act was not what Uh, Job was suffering for because he had committed no act of adultery. He did not go outside of his marriage. His friends, again, were wrong. This has come upon you because you're going outside of your marriage. I'm telling you I haven't done that. Again, who is the source of his calamity? Is it Job's lack of integrity and purity and fidelity? No, it's Satan. It's Satan. Verses 10 to 12. This is where he lays out the consequence of if he had gone outside his marriage. Then, and this, the way the ESV puts this is just, 
then let my wife grind for another? That sounds like something out of one of today's R&B songs. Let my wife grind for another? What on earth are you saying here? And then he says, and let others bow down on her. If I've done this, let others bow down on her. Yeah, that does mean what you think. For that would be a heinous crime, he says, that, that would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. What's he doing? He's, again, describing the consequences of physical adultery, going outside the marriage. If he had cheated on his wife, several things would happen. First, his wife would grind for another. Here's the meaning. It's not like what people think today. It means that his wife would likely divorce him, and she would be found in another man's kitchen grinding grain on a millstone. Get your mind out of the gutter. That's what it means. She is going to go, and, and she would leave me if this happened, probably divorce me, and, and she would probably remarry. And the next thing you know, she's making bread for Sal. There's no one named Sal here. That's why I used it. And watch all of a sudden, hey, that's my middle name. It's like, well, I'm sorry, Sal. It just means that she's going to be cooking for somebody else. Second, other men would bow down on his wife. Now, that does mean what you think. This phrase is linked to 2 Samuel 12, 10, where David's adultery with Bathsheba is mentioned, so we know it can't be good there. And to Jeremiah 8, 10, where it speaks of the unfaithful wise men of Judah, God causing them to lose their wives to other men. A simple meaning would be if Job cheats on his wife, other men are going to bow down on his wife or sleep with them. He's saying, if I cheat, she will pay me back with cheating. That's what he's saying. And it, it's amazing that people back in antiquity, way back when, thought like this, because this is how people think today. What does that tell us? People are people. They haven't changed. If I go outside of the marriage there's a very high likeliness that she's going to get me back and do it too. That's what he's saying. And then the third consequence would be that Job would likely be arrested and face prosecution in a human court. Why? Because adultery back then was a heinous crime. He says it was an iniquity to be punished by the judges. Is it illegal today? No, it used to be. Has anyone seen the old picture of Frank Sinatra going to jail for cheating with another man's wife? It's out there. He got pinched and went to jail for adultery. It used to be illegal. It should still be illegal. And today it's celebrated. He's saying, man, I would end up going to court and I would have to face judges because it's not legal to do that. And then fourthly, he would face, which would be the highest and ultimate consequence, that would be divine judgment. And he identifies that or explains it or describes it as a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. Abaddon means destruction. This, the, the, the fire caused by his infidelity, and let me tell you something right now, infidelity causes fire. It'll break out a fire in your house and marriage that you ain't ever seen. And it can burn very far, as far as it's bad. And it can destroy your children's lives, your neighbors' lives, your distant relatives' lives. There is a high cost for fooling around for a few minutes. And Job is saying, I know this. There's no way I would want to do that and, and cause this, this kind of judgment to come upon me. It's a heinous crime. It's a fire starter that would burn to the root of all that man's increase. In other words, if, he, if I went outside of the marriage, it's just going to destroy everything. My marriage, my family, my household, everything. My business, it'll be gone. Steve Lawson said something good. He said the fire would consume a man's soul, marriage, reputation, and hard work. And that is true. Think about what you're doing, flirting around. We know Job was not an adulterer. His wife was still with him during this. I don't know where she was. 
I don't think she was on the ash heap. She was probably left in her house. She didn't have any servants, so she probably had to do her own things. Maybe she had a few servants left. I don't know, but we don't know where she is. We don't hear from her again. We only hear from her one time, and what she said was ridiculous. Just curse God and die. The end of chapter 2, I believe. But she was still with him, and the fact that she was still with him proves what? That he had not gone outside of his marriage, because if he had, she would have bowed down with other men, probably divorced him. He'd been in court. Court, judges, none of that's mentioned here. We never see Job go to a trial for adultery. The fact that his wife was with him proves his innocence, although he does have calamity in his life. But the calamity was caused by who? Satan, not Job's behavior. He had lost literally everything, but he had not lost his wife. Satan was the perpetrator. We know this. Number four, Job's impartiality. We see this in 13 to 15, and we will just look at that set of verses. We don't have to break it up too much. He says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Do not, uh, did not he who made me in the womb make him, the servant he's saying, and did not one fashion us in the womb? Job is kind of the focus of his self-examination to his dealings with others, and he invited investigation here, you know, inquiry into his dealings with people. You know, as the greatest of all the people of the East, Job 1.3, he had many manservants and maidservants in his household. It, it literally took a small army to run his estate, to run his business. I mean, if he's the greatest man of everyone in the East, what kind of estate and business are we talking about here? Right? Imagine the greatest, you know, engineer or, I don't know, whomever in Silicon Valley. That person would have a pretty serious house and estate and possessions and everything else. And that was Job of his day. He was just had it all, and he had an army running everything. He depended on his male and female servants. And when they brought a complaint against him, because I want you to know that, notice the phrasing. This isn't just like somebody showing up, and you know what? Uh, I've been working side by side with Fred all day, and he's been a disaster, complaining about other employees or servants. He's talking about when they, if they and when they brought a complaint against me, here's how I dealt with them. He's the boss and he's taking employee complaints. That's what he's talking about here. When they brought a complaint, a complaint against him, like employees sometimes or almost always do. Hallelujah, employers. Huh? Always whining, always complaining, never enough money. Never enough hours, give more hours, too many hours, right? Not enough benefits. You know, I work part-time with a guy who is shelling out all the income and everything he can for his employees, and he's the last to get anything because that's what happens as a boss, and there isn't much to spare for him. And I, I say to him, why are you doing this? You'd make more money working at stinking Dick's Sporting Goods. Seriously, sometimes being an employer is a drag. I've been one. And, and your employees will complain against you. And, and Job is saying, when they came to me with complaints about me, my dealings with them, he says, I was impartial and I listened to their cause. That's what he's saying. Obviously, his friends were making this charge. You're a bad businessman. You don't even treat your employees right. You don't even listen to them when they have a problem with you. And he's saying, I do. I do listen to them. You see, Job, being even the greatest person of all the people in the East, he didn't think of himself as too high on the totem pole to deal with those down below. I don't even think he looked at people as being down lower on the pole. I don't. Job is like one of the only uh, very prominent, patriarchal, wealthy, amazing people in Scripture. There's not many of them, but he's, he, he's one there that, you know, he just, he just never, and I'm not saying others did, but he just never, ever, ever cultivated a king-to-surf kind of 
vibe. I'm the king, you're the serf, do as I say. He never treated people like that. He didn't even treat people in a master-servant or master-slave kind of scenario. This guy, uh, he, he was the boss, and you would know it. He had acted like the boss, but he did not lord his power and position over those who worked for him. That's the main thing. Job was humble. No one was too low on the social spectrum to gain an audience with Job. And Job was such an intimidating figure in his community that the young men would flee from his presence and those who outranked him in society would shut up when he talked. And yet, he didn't cultivate any of this. It was the respect he cultivated among everyone else just by the way he lived, not because he demanded it. And by the way, you should never have to demand respect. You're either respectable or you aren't. And the way that you conduct yourself will determine whether people see you as respectable or not. And if they think you're an idiot, you're not getting respect and quit asking for it. If they think you're honorable and you have integrity and you're like Job, you'll get a lot of respect. But you never have to ask for it. This guy was just... I, if I could go back, I would work for him. I don't know anything about cattle, but moo? Does that work? Not really. I mean, this is the guy, this is the ultimate boss. This guy is not like some of those CEOs or corporate people at Gallo or, you know, in, in the corporate world that just, just abuse the power. I'm not saying they do that at Gallo. I don't know, Tim, you can tell me later. But, you know, this, this guy is the guy that you not only want to work for, but you want to learn to be like and emulate because he had such strong godly qualities. No one was too low for him. Manservants and maidservants alike could interact with him anytime they liked. He really was in many regards like the Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey of his day. He was. He was wise, he was generous, he was compassionate, he was likable, he was accessible, and unlike Lord Grantham, he never kissed a maid. He never did that. No Downton fans here? Am I all alone? It's a great show. It reminds me of him. Grantham was a pretty good guy. Job was a much better man. Job's impartiality could be, you could also see it in his fair and just treatment of, of both genders. Notice how I said both, not 152. He did not favor men over women or vice versa. This happens. He did not do that. He didn't play that game. He treated men and women equally. And this was an extraordinary thing for that time in antiquity because back then, societies and cultures did not have a high view of women. They still don't in some parts of the world. You know, what's the song? It's a man's world, right? Why, why was that song written? Because somebody realized there's a problem. Who was that? Was that Marvin Gaye? This was an extraordinary thing for him to treat both equally. It just didn't happen back then. In fact, I was thinking about history. America was kind of, you know, officially founded on what? July 4th, 1776, right? That's why we have 4th of July, which I've grown to hate, because the fireworks start in June and end of December. Amen? That might be depending on the quality of your neighborhood. Mine's okay. And I think if you live in Del Rio, you know, it's like, stop with those fireworks. Okay, I'm so sorry. Let's play tennis. <laughs> in my neighborhood, they're going off all the time. And the other night, I was like, really? There's nothing to celebrate right now. I'm angry. <laughs> and then you've got the weed smell. It's like, come on. So... Our nation was founded technically July 4, 1776, and yet women were prohibited from voting until August 18th of 1920. What? Come on, man. Yeah, 144 years. 
So, so the problem existed in Job's day. He didn't play the game. And it, exists, it existed in America recently and probably still does in some regard. Job's friends were charging him with partiality toward his male and female servants, right? Like, you know what, you're getting judged and all this stuff's happening to you because you favor the men or favor the gals. In fact, we think you favor the gals, right? They've already stated that, calling him a dirty old man, ridiculous. Job responds basically by posing a question. If he had indeed committed the grievous sin of partiality, because that's what it is, then surely God would do what? Rise up and make inquiry. God would totally lay out his life and, and, and investigate him to the, you know, like better than Sherlock Holmes. In other words, God would hold him accountable, he's saying. If I had done what you said, this is what would happen. And Job even says, what could I possibly do or say at that point if God investigated me and found impartiality? There's nothing that I could do against him. I couldn't lie to him. I couldn't get myself out of it. I would be guilty. Job says that God had made him and his servants in the exact same way. That is his way of touting equality. If we're both created the same way, in the womb, we are equal. Hello, what a concept. God doesn't make one a little better in the womb. He says he fashioned us in the womb. That makes us equal. That's what he's saying. He's saying we're equal in image bearing. We're equal in humanness. We're equal in dignity. We're equal in worth. We're equal in rights. This is God's design for every person born of a woman, male and female alike. That's what Job is essentially saying. There's no way I would do this. I know what God has done. This is his design. And yet, he also understands, and his friends were charging him with this, but he understands that fallen sinners, they deliberately distort God's design, don't they? People are classified by color, ethnicity, gender. These are other, you know, there's various social markers that our, our culture does. You know, it just identifies people by things, which I think is ridiculous. I would say our government, which seems to be imposing endless rules on us, is the biggest offender of all in this area. Fill out just about any governmental form, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Being a guy that's into firearms and stuff like that, I know these things. If you buy a firearm in California, you have to fill out a DROS. It's a dealer record of sale. It has a section where you have to check a box that matches your race, and then you have to check a box right next to it that indicates whether you are or are not Hispanic. What? Not only do you have to mark your race, but you have to tell them whether you're Mexican or not, or Hispanic. This is our government. I'm not. Will that help me get a gun? What is the thinking behind this? It's absurd. Now, making it worse, the California DOJ just revised this document. Hallelujah! Right? They revised it but they revised the gender section. It now reads male, female, or non-binary. That's what they fixed. They screwed up the only thing that was right on the whole thing. But it left the insanely offensive, in my opinion, Hispanic or not Hispanic thing. What does non-binary mean? It means the person who checks that box, it means they don't see their self as male or female. Now, I just have to say, and I don't, I, don't, I don't want to poke fun, but if a person doesn't understand that they're male or female, is selling them a gun a good idea? Are they mentally, think about this in a serious way, because it is funny. Are they mentally fit to own a deadly firearm, a deadly weapon? I don't get it. But our government and our culture thinks so. It thinks that the most normal, rational people in our society are the ones that don't understand their gender. Look, when a person's skin tone or color is singled out, it isn't racism. We call it that, but it isn't racism. The term racism implies what? Multiple races. How many races are there? The 
human race. There's only one race of people on this planet. Therefore, racism doesn't actually exist. There is no such thing as racism. The biblical term for favoring one over the other, one shade over the other, or you know anything like that, the biblical term is not racism. The biblical term is partiality. That's what's happening. Or you are showing partiality. You're choosing one over the other. And, and we, we, we see this today. When one shade, I'll say, because we have different shades. We're one race. We're not really different races. We can be def- different ethnicities and different shades, but we're just different shades. But when a, one shade uh, basically favors itself over other shades, we call that racism. That's actually just partiality. When a shade despises its own shade and favors another shade, that's partiality. Do we not see that today? People similar to my shade are denouncing their whiteness and joining organizations that favor darker shades over lighter shades. And they call that social justice. It's partiality. (laughs) Today's Social justice warriors are not like the abolitionists of old. The abolitionists were impartial. They believed in equality. That's what they fought for. The black man is the same as the white man. They're both men. SJWs are not, they're not really about race. They're about partiality. And really, if you study them, they're socialists. That's what they are. How many people have been killed by socialist communist regimes? A hundred million. Socialism kills. Partiality is sin. When one ethnicity favors itself over others, it's partiality. When one gender favors itself over another gender, this is partiality, or the other gender, I should say. When a poor man favors poor people over others, when, you know, he doesn't have any kind of taste for the wealthy or any of that, he just wants to hang out with his poor homies, partiality. And the same thing in the reverse, when a wealthy man favors wealthy people over Uh, over others and poor people or whomever, that is partiality. It's all partiality. That's what we're dealing with. What am I telling you? Job was impartial. He saw himself as equal to all. Why? Because he understood God's design. If he was made and fashioned in a womb by God... How could he favor himself over others who were formed and fashioned in a womb by God? If we're all born of of mamas, how could I think that I'm better than that guy over there who was born of a mama? That's what he's saying. This is his logic. Is it sound? Amen. And it is is the exact logic and, and understanding that we should hold. Let's move to the fifth personal trait. Job's charity, verses 16 to 23. Job refutes the charges of Eliphaz about possible injustices against the the neediest people in us, the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Eliphaz had hammered Job on this uh, back in Job 22, verses 7 to 9. And Job defended himself in chapter 24, verses 1 to 12, chapter 29, verses 12 to 16. He's defending himself once again here against these charges. This time, he pronounces a malediction. What is a malediction? It is a curse. He pronounces one upon himself if he had done any of these following things, any of these following examples of being uncharitable. Verse 16a, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired. Verse 16b, if I have caused the eyes of the widow to fall or fail. Verse 17, if I have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. And then what Job does right in the middle of of if I had done any of these things, he takes a quick pause to say something about himself in a parenthetical statement in verse 18. He says, for from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided uh, the widow. And then now he returns to his list, if I had done this, if I had done this, if I had done this, verses 19 to 20, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body had not or has not blessed me, and if he he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, 
And then in verse 21, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my, uh, I saw my help in the gate, what is Job saying? If he had committed any of these acts of uncharity, any of these acts of incharity, actually, or any of these injustices toward the poor, widows and orphans, and he's saying, if I had done any of these things, I would pronounce a curse on myself. I would ask God to curse me. I would say, God, if I had done any of these things, do this to me. That's what he's saying. Now, he's going to identify what the curse is in verse 22, but I want you to understand how serious pronouncing a malediction on yourself was back in this day. Very serious. The most serious thing you could do in Job's day. Not taken seriously today because we do the same thing in other ways. Well, if I'm lying, uh, may God strike down my mother. That's a malediction, and that's a stupid thing to do, and I hear people do it. In Job's day... Very serious for you to lay out a bunch of things that you had done. You know, if I had done any of these things, then may God do this to me. To act like that and to say that, that was a huge thing in Job's day. Curses were taken very seriously by ancient Near Eastern peoples. Words spoken or written, had, had, they believed, had real power. And to call down curses on oneself was a grave and very daring thing to do. Job was, in a sense, by laying out this list of things that if he had possibly done and then pronouncing this curse in 22, he was taking the ultimate risk to prove his innocence to his friends because he fully believed that God would act on this malediction that he pronounces if he was indeed lying. He believes God would do this to him. That's the difference between today and then. Back then, when they pronounced a curse on, their, on themselves, they believed that God would act on it. So you had to take it real serious. Today, nobody takes that serious. Who in their right mind would say, you can strike down my dad if I'm lying? If you believed that, you would never make that malediction. You would say, if I'm lying, may God strike me down, instead of putting it on your poor parent who's at home and has no idea what you're doing. What is the malediction? If I'd done any of these things, verse 22, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Doesn't seem all that bad, right? The loss of an arm, maybe. whoop de do. What does he mean? What is he saying through his poetry? What he's actually saying is this. If I have committed these acts of uncharity, if I have been uncharitable, if I have committed these injustices, may God tear off my arms. That's what he's saying. Why would he want God to tear off his arms? Because he understood why God had given him arms. Job had arms so that he could lend a hand to those who needed a hand. Job had arms so that he could wrap up hurting people in them and give them a hug of encouragement. Job believed God had given him arms to use those arms, not for himself, but to serve others. What Job is essentially saying here in this curse is that if I had done the things that you're charging me with, then may God take away and rip off my arms. May it be a bloody mess because I have failed to use my arms for their purposes. That's what he's saying. Job is saying if I had used my arms to serve only myself and then even worse, to commit these grievous injustices against those in need, widows and orphans, the, the most hurting and destitute people in us. If I had done any of that, then I don't deserve arms. Tear them off. That's what he's saying. May God cause my shoulder blade to fall. May God cause my arm to be broken from its socket, tear them off. That's what he's saying. In the last verse for this morning, Job describes why he steers clear of injustice, why he stays away from being uncharitable, why he stays away from all of the things that he was being charged with, why he, why he refuses to engage in that sinful behavior and that wickedness. He he nails it right here in verse 23. 
You're saying I did all these things. I'm telling you I stay away from them. Something else is going on here. But let me tell you why I stay away from those things. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced His majesty. Hmm. Job had lived with great restraint and fear of mistreating others because he dreaded calamity from God. You see, fear of punishment is a strong deterrent to sin, isn't it? And he really, really feared the Lord. He respected the Lord to the point that I'm not going to look at virgins like that. I'm not going to do all the things. You're saying I've done these things. I'm not doing any of these things. Why? Because it's just sinful and bad. Amen. But more so because I, 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 I'm in fear of God. I respect Him and I know what He could do in response to those things. Fear of punishment is a strong deterrent to sin. What is it then? Holy terror prevented Job from doing such things. He says himself in his own words, I did not want to face the awesome majesty of God. Wow. That's ultimately why, and and obviously through the, the power of the Spirit and these things, but that's obviously why Job lived the life that he did. He had a wholesome, healthy fear of God. He had the power of God through the Spirit. This is why he was a blameless, righteous man. I mean, God had made him righteous through faith, but he was also a blameless and practically or practical righteous man in an everyday sense because he feared God and lived his life the way you're supposed to live your life as a Christian. What an amazing defense, and it's only half there. Closing. I just want to ask you, how do you compare with the battered patriarch You knew this was coming. How do we square with him? How do we line up? (laughs) Job was sexually pure. He made a covenant or firm commitment with his own eyes, mind, and heart to avoid lustful fantasizing about other women. Every Christian, young, middle-aged, or older ought to be like Job and make the same commitment to sexual purity. Especially us men. To look on a woman or man, I say man, I know most of this in the Bible is aimed at men because I think men are usually the biggest culprits in this. Women are different struggles a lot of times. Some have the same struggles as us guys. But for the most part, we need to include both genders, there's two, men or women. Look, to look on another man or another woman with lust is to do what? It is to commit adultery in one's heart. Matthew 5, 28. Jesus said it's not enough Our culture has this idea that, you know, you can look but not touch. Wrong! God says, don't even look that way. Look, you you, you may not, you may look with lust, but you may not touch, and you may, may think that you're safe in that, but Jesus says, you just committed adultery in your heart. Looking can be the same as touching. Whoa! And, and here's, what's, here's what's terrifying about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9b and verse 10b, Paul gives an example of the calamity and disaster that will come upon unrepentant, sexually immoral people, right? Those who, 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 who look with lust, those who sleep with their girlfriends, those who commit you know, uh, sex outside of wedlock, those who cheat on their spouses, name it, homosexuality, name the sexual sin, Those people who are sexually immoral, this is what he says of them. This is the disaster and calamity that comes upon them. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, dot, 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 will what? They will not. Those who do these sexual sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm okay. No! No, don't think like that. Don't think like that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm saved by Jesus' blood, and, and I'm under grace, so you know I keep, I keep bowing down on my lady. 
who I'm not married to. No, don't think like that. It's the wrong way to think. It's so clear. The Greek word for immoral is pornos. It is a variation of porneo. We get our word pornography from it. It, it. it is literally a general term that refers to every kind of sexual sin. Fornication, that's sex outside of wedlock. Adultery. I would even put, as Jesus did, I would put lust in there. That's sexual sin. In fact, in some translations, they don't even use the word or the phrase sexually immoral. They use the word fornicator, someone who sleeps with people that aren't his wife. King James does it. New King James does that. I say this, and I want to say it with sensitivity, but there are unmarried couples in churches today who are deceived, and they think that fornication or sleeping together is okay. And, uh, well, you know, married anyway, so God sees us as married. Did you, did you agree to a covenant of marriage before God as a witness and before others as a witness? Did you go through a formal biblical process to do that? then you're not married, and God doesn't see you as married. I'm amazed at what we sinners will do to justify our behavior. I have counseled couples who are not married or who are together sexually, and it's just like, you're playing fast and loose here. This is dangerous. And I understand temptation and all that. Just, just know that fornicators and adulterers, sexually immoral people, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul said. You can either believe that or not. But it's what the Word says. And if you're a Christian, you ought not be doing that. And you have the Holy Spirit. And you have church family that will help you and counsel you. You don't have to give in to your flesh. I know it's not, you know, I know it's hard to avoid, but you don't have to do it. And there's right ways to go about this. Don't put yourself in situations where it can happen. Job did that. He made a covenant with his eyes because his eyes are the first step. If he makes a covenant with his eyes, it won't get into his mind, into his heart. So as soon as he sees, he turns away. Don't have your girlfriend over late at night. Amen? So he was a sexually pure man. We are called to be that. How do we measure up there? Maybe some of us fall short. I think we all do in the lust area. I do praise God for his grace, but I'm never going to go out there and say, well, you know, I got his grace, so it's okay. Oh, my goodness, no way. Don't ever think like that. Grace isn't a, isn't a license for our lust. Job also had integrity. He was the same person all the time. He was a godly man, 24-7, 365, and wherever he went. I hate him for this because this is hard. He was not a Sunday-only Christian. He was a Monday through Sunday Christian. And he had business integrity. He did not commit unfair practices. He did not use dishonest scales. He paid his employees what they were worth, probably even more so. Uh, he sold his organic produce and livestock at fair prices. How do I know this? Because he was a good businessman. In fact, he was a great businessman. He was a great boss. Do we have integrity? Are we the same person all the time? Do we have business integrity? Do we have in employment or employee integrity? We ought to be like Job in this. Job practiced fidelity. He would not let himself be enticed by other women. He was a one-woman man. And you can't say, well, I don't have the best wife, so it's kind of hard. Well, he didn't have the best wife either. Right? Because she told him, just curse God and get it over with. Thank you for your encouragement. I love you. Let's renew our vows next week. <laughs> Guys will say that. Well, you know, my wife, you know, I don't know, man. You know, I just stop. I don't even want to hear about it. I know she's better than you. I already know this. Shut up. He was completely faithful to his wife. If we are married, are we practicing, and I would say full fidelity? Are we sticking to our spouse? You know what Scripture says we're to do in Proverbs 5.18? We are, speaking to the men, we are to rejoice in the wife of our youth. You've been married for a while. Rejoice in, in the woman that you married so long ago. Celebrate her. Honor her. Honor God. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Don't look around for somebody else. The grass is never greener somewhere else. 
And I would say flirting is inappropriate. It is. It's inappropriate. And some people today, oh, I would, I would never actually get with a man, but I have a really, really good emotional relationship with a guy at work. Emotional relationships, that is adultery. Well, I don't think of him lustfully. Well, maybe you don't, and maybe you're not committing that particular sin, but maybe you're giving that guy attention at work, ladies, that you don't give to your husband when you get home. You are robbing him of what he alone should get. I say this because I don't think men are all that involved or all that interested in emotional affairs with women. They're barely emotional. All right? Here's our emotions. I'm hungry. That's one of them. That's a powerful one, too, especially if you're a gordo like me. The belly. That's the thing that some of the women, I think, deal with. Messing around in your spouse, it will, as I said earlier, it'll ignite a fire that'll consume as far as a bad and as far as destruction. I've seen it. It's horrible. I'm, I'm a victim of it. My dad went outside of the marriage with my mom when I was 14. It destroyed everything. It did. It was horrible. Don't do it. Job was impartial. He showed no favoritism. He treated others as equals. Are we impartial? You know, in churches like RHC, we've got to be really careful with this. We may not show the impartiality of skin tone and, and those sorts of things, or maybe even the gender game we could play like whatever, although I think guys should hang out with guys and women with women. That's the safer bet. But we may not play that game, but there is one type of partiality that we can fall into here, and it's called click. Well, I got my little groove. That's, that's who I want to hang out. Who's that guy? Get out of here. You're not part of this. We all can fall into this. How do you know if you're in it? You know you're in it if you have the exact same people over all the time and no one else. That's how you know it. Guilty. I've done this. I understand how it works. You get comfortable with people. There's chemistry there. You enjoy them. I understand. But when it gets to where it's just, you know, just us and we don't want to be inclusive and invite others in who are out there who want that kind of fellowship and closeness and want to be part of a, you know, of a group of people, that's partiality. Quite frankly, I think one of the biggest deterrents for all of us when it comes to these cliques is that we just try to exclude difficult people. Oh, here comes Sammy. Shut the door. I mean, some people will just come in and disrupt everything. I get it. But maybe what they need is to be brought in and loved really well. Or put into a bus and driven away. <laughs> we can be clicky. Be careful with the clicks. That's a type of partiality. It can be sinful. Job was charitable, especially toward the have-nots. He cared for the poor, he cared for widows, he cared for orphans. I love that parenthetical statement where he says, I acted as if, I, he was like a, he was like a um, uh, what do you call it, a surrogate father to orphans. How wonderful. He was a father to the fatherless. He even made a vow with God to have his own arms ripped off if he failed to use those arms for an intended purposes, and that is to serve others. That is amazing to me. Are we charitable? Do we use our arms for their intended purposes? To lift up the downcast? To lend a hand to those who need a hand? To pull sinners from the perilous broad road to destruction? We can do that with the gospel. Pull them right out of there, Lord willing. Do we use them for their intended purposes? How do we measure up to Job? Hmm. I doubt any of us really do. We all fail in each of these areas, undoubtedly. As I said, maybe we haven't gone outside of our marriages. You know, we haven't gone all the way with the infidelity. We haven't done that physically. But Jesus said, man, if you even look at a woman or someone in lust, you've done that. So, wow. It's not okay to look that way. Make a covenant with your eyes. The thing is, is that I don't think we measure up, and I think we've all failed undoubtedly, but the good news is Jesus died to pay for the sins that we're talking about. He did. He died to pay for sexual 
impurity and a lack of integrity, infidelity, partiality, you know, uncharity. He, he died to pay for those sins and those failings. And if we will humble ourselves and confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, one of my favorite verses. We do that, God will take the blood of Christ. He will wash us clean with it. He will take the righteousness of Christ. He will cover us with it. He will employ his spirit as our sanctifier, teacher, guide, and source with a big S of power so that we can live for him each day. Not perfectly, but better and better and better.